This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hi everyone, I'm Scott Tyson, the host of the Vanguard podcast. And after the huge success of Series 1, I'm very happy to introduce you to Series 2 going live on September the 1st. We recorded 12 episodes in the last series, which included all types of innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders of industries who are all genuinely nice, successful people who have inspired me and our listeners in what they've achieved and are building in their lives and their careers. The first episode of Series 2, we've put together a compilation of all the interesting bits of all the episodes we had last series with our guest list building for this new series as well. We're so excited with what we have coming up as these guests include business leaders, World Economic Forum members and innovators in their fields. Remember, the Vanguard podcast releases a new episode every two weeks and runs for about 30 or 40 minutes, giving you insight as to what makes these people tick, how they got successful, and what drives them to achieve their goals, both in business and in life. Join our Facebook page where you can learn more about the podcast, even suggest possible guests, or get in contact with any questions you may have for me or any of our guests as well. Stand by and get ready for the Vanguard podcast, blasting off with Series 2 on September the 1st. My guest today is Ian Vickers, CEO of MacCloud. Ian is a serial technology entrepreneur who launched his MacCloud brand in 2017. But one of the things that you and I speak about, actually, before we get into all this is elite sport mentality and teamwork. And is that a fair comment to say that sport and the basis of sport was the catalyst to get you going in business? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I took a lot from the things that I learned early on uh, when I joined some professional football teams up in the Northwest. Started out at 14 and I just was fascinated uh, that repetitive nature of everyday training and that desire and demand made on you as an individual to perform at your highest level, which I find fascinating. I think some of the strengths it brings is a having to work in a team because obviously football is a team sport similar to cricket and and obviously other team sports and you know you have to think about how you perform or, or contribute I should say to that team but then also there's there's times when you're injured and there's times when you have to train on your own and there has to be self discipline which I think is a is a key part of becoming a professional sports person this podcast is around pivoting and changing direction and innovation and so forth. And I know for a fact that innovation's at your core and something that you like to follow. What's one of the most innovative things that you've seen or witnessed in the last 10 years? Well, definitely in the last 10 years, it has to be the cloud. You know, Microsoft is your Amazon Web Services uh, recently added to that ecosystem, Google Cloud platform. And yeah, of course, MetCloud. I've got to say that as well. But, you know, I just think that what's going on right now is transformational on every level, whether it's business, whether it's health, whether it's science, whether it's education. What the cloud is doing right now for the global community is phenomenal. Absolutely agree. And especially now with COVID and so forth, with the new vaccines and so forth, there's just so much innovation happening on a not just a daily basis, but an hourly basis, right? Well, I would imagine that cloud infrastructures have, have enabled rapid development of COVID vaccines. You know, the data analytics capability, the adoption of AI, machine learning, uh, all of those kind of technologies are transforming the way health 
is you know sort of created and and outcomes are improved upon all the time you know and, and I look at the way that small businesses well I should say all businesses of any size have been able to quickly react to the demands of what the pandemic have done for work from home kind of schemes and and the way that businesses agility has improved significantly and that can only be done through cloud delivery models is there one tool within your business whether it be cloud-based SaaS or, you know, the broom or the kettle. Um, but is there one tool within your, your business that, that you couldn't live without at the moment? It's a difficult one to say. I think for me, um, what makes MetCloud very special and makes all successful businesses special is the culture that is created and the team ethic. And I think if you could actually say that's one single thing, that would be it. I would say it's it's team effort. And so much can be achieved through great team ethics. And I think that's the number one all businesses need to have if they want to be super successful. One thing I really wanted to touch on, and and, and I think this question I know you're okay with because we've spoken about it ourselves. I think everyone I certainly know has been affected by this, but no one that I know at my age has certainly came through it as robust or as focused as you. And, and that was in 2016. I know you got diagnosed with stage three cancer and, you know, a lot of people that can really put you back in your career path or where you want to go or what you want to do. But for you, it's almost inspired you to move forward. Do you mind talking us through that and telling us where that took you and, and how it's helped you get to where you are now? Yeah, you're right, Scott. I mean, you know, this is an uplifting story. You know, I know sometimes they don't turn out to be so so good. But, you know, for me and, and lots of other people who've, who've gone through this process of having cancer and come out the other end, you know, it can be or has been certainly for me life-changing. You know, so it came out of nowhere. It was a literally I was just having a health check. I'd got to a certain age. I was just over, I was 51. My wife said, you know, that you need to go and have a proper full MOT kind of scenario. So I did do that. And that's when they uh, diagnosed that I had stage three kidney cancer. So it didn't give me a lot of time to take it all in. Within about seven days, I was in the operating theater having the kidney removed. And, and from there, you know, it was like, well, okay, how do you deal with things like that? And, and for me, I'm, I'm always very optimistic and, you know, things weren't going so well at the time in, in the business. And I had two months out of the business and it gave me an opportunity to reflect as to where I was at, what I wanted to do in the future. And I think what, you know, near death experiences bring is that sense of, well, life is really too short. And, and you think sometimes you haven't achieved what you wanted to set out to achieve, or you hadn't done this and you hadn't done that. And, and it gives you a second opportunity to rectify all those things. And, uh, sure. that, and that's what it gave me. It gave me a new impetus and a, and a new zest for life. And actually, all of the things that and I guess bringing back to an analogy of IT and technology, you know, maybe it was time for me to, you know, reboot myself and, and clear out all that rubbish that had built up over the years with negative things that had gone on in the business, maybe negative things that had gone on in my personal life. And, and it gave me an opportunity to clear that out. And for a long time, I'd not sort of had a sense of clarity of thought and clarity of direction of travel where I wanted to go. So when I got back into the business in January in 2017, 100%, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And that's what I've done. I rebranded the company. All of the original founders of the business uh, have moved on because I knew that that's what was needed to do. And we have just gone about changing the whole culture of the company. 
to which we are now, you know, and everything that we've put in place is all built around that initial blueprint that I developed at the end of 2016 and 2017. So I'm super proud about what we've achieved in the last three years. But yeah, cancer has given me a, a second chance at making sure that we do things right moving forward. You know, I really appreciate you being so open and sharing that with us. When you came back, seeing a different you, just just the sparkle in your eye and the determination was was quite inspiring. And, you know, I defy anyone that, that doesn't get inspired by that in some way, shape or form. So you know, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Today, I'm very, very pleased to welcome Gene Rich, who is a 15-year veteran in the MSP space. Before co-founding his company, Traceless, he founded Point, which is a managed service provider servicing small and medium-sized businesses in New York and San Francisco. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott, for having me. It's really nice to be here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, you're based in New York. Um, it's now the 17th of December. How is the weather over there? And, um, you know, are you freezing and not outside? Yeah, you know, it's um, finally feels like winter. We've got about 10 inches of snow on the ground. I'm about an hour and a half north of the city right now. And um, I like the seasons, you know, so I don't mind the cold and the snow. Absolutely. And it must look absolutely beautiful as well. Yeah, today's a nice one. Fantastic. Well, Gene, again, thanks so much for joining us. And, and the part of this podcast is it's it's fairly punchy, it's fairly quick. It's for someone to be listening at their desk or going for a run and so forth. And we've got a few questions here. And I, I really want to start by asking a little bit about your background. And it's, it's truly a pivot that is out of this world to a certain extent. You know, you go from a successful model in New York City and you move into the world of technology, software business, cybersecurity. Tell me, why did you get in that? And what inspired you to make that pivot from modeling into the world of tech? Yeah, it's 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 a story that people don't dig up that often, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. You know, I kind of finished college with a degree in accounting and computer science and decided to just take a break. Um, I think it's more common, at least for my friends that I had that were from Europe, where people take a break between you know high school and college, or as you might call it, uni. You know, or they take a break you know, after college, before they start their, their career. And I feel like I just needed a point of inflection to take a break. And I had this opportunity to live in New York uh, and model, which sounds glorious, but it was an interesting way to see the city. And it's good when you get paid. But outside of that, unless you're top, you know, probably 5%, which I wasn't, it's, it's kind of difficult to make an actual career out of it. I think it's similar to acting. You know, there's a lot of people who act uh, and you hear about the success of like the top 5% of actors, you know, in that way, it's a little bit uh, unpredictable. And so during that time, obviously, you were trying to work out, I'm making a little bit of money here, but I need to do something different to augment that income and so forth. Granted, New York's not the cheapest place to live in the world. So moving into the world of technology, tell me, how did that how did that come about? Yeah, so I was actually um, catering to supplement my income. And it's probably one of my more favorite jobs I've had in my life, uh, especially in New York. Kind of introduced me to all different neighborhoods, you know, crazy houses and apartments, different restaurants, uh, very different level of culinary experience than I'd ever had before in my life. 
but you know, I kind of identified that after a while that that wasn't something I wanted to pursue long term. And so I figured I'd get back into technology, right? And um, one of my buddies was an Oracle database administrator. And I said, hey, you know, maybe you can help me out and give me some white papers and some certs I can start reviewing. And he had mentioned his neighbor needed an IT consultant and wanted to move their business from from using Windows to to Apple devices. And he had known that I was kind of obsessed with Apple devices and what they were really doing with packaging and, and their product and their OS. And that was kind of like my first client as, as an IT consultant uh, back in 2005. I guess that's a really, a really good break point there. You know, one of the things I know about you, and we've known each other now almost a year, and, and you know, one of the things that I find when we speak is, you know, you're always coming up with different business ideas or inspiration around a tweak to a business, which which really is insightful in a lot of ways when we have a conversation. You know, your your brain will go this way and then you'll think, oh, what about if we do that? So that business idea or that inspirational element of your brain seems to be working constantly all the time. Is it is it because you have a very inventive mind? Is it because you have a need to bring new ideas to the fore to make your life easier or, or friends' lives easier? Or is it the dreams of wealth or is it all of the above? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there's a, a great kind of paradigm with management that's going through the MSP space around entrepreneur operating system or you know EOS. Uh, there's a book called Traction that a lot of MSPs got really into. And, and I think it's great. And it really kind of explains the difference between like an operator and a visionary. And I think that made me feel a little bit better about my shortcomings uh, around implementing my ideas. Because for a while, I just felt like I wasn't good at doing stuff in my own MSP. And, but I had a lot of great ideas, right? And so for me, that's what I am naturally drawn towards. And sometimes it's a blessing and sometimes it's a curse. You know, I remember one of my friends who was kind of a mentor, he, he had a, a business in the city where he was working in government technology after being the CTO of like the prison and correctional facilities in the five boroughs. And I had gotten myself way over my head. And I just didn't know what to do with my business. I, you know, it was, a, it was one of those points where I felt like I was either going to lose my business and do something else or dig my feet in deeper and, and deal with some of the challenges that I had created for myself. And he said, hey, man, this is you, right? Like your head's in the clouds sometimes. And that's a good thing, right? Because you're always thinking about stuff and um, that's where you like to be. But what that means is that your feet aren't always on the ground. And sometimes that can cause problems. And for me, that was like a, a great inflection point of my own career and uh, as being a business owner to think differently about, hey, it's okay that I got here, but I, I really have to be careful about it because sometimes it could lead me down a path that's not very conducive to success or happiness. Who inspires you now and who inspired you in the past and why? Yeah, so I think there are some some of my peers that really inspire me to to run a better MSP on that side. You know, I think my family is really inspiring me right now. You know, my wife and I have a close to two-year-old boy and kind of taking it a step back and really staying present in the moment as my son's growing up is inspiring me to think about how my work life is and what I'm doing in my own career. So that's, that's kind of what's turning the, the gears these days. 
Today, I'm joined by a very special guest who, along with being a friend of mine for over 16 years, is one of the original members of the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team. He is also a three-time Olympian and was the captain of that team in 1992 and 1998. His team's exploits in the 1998 games in Calgary inspired the hit movie Cool Runnings. In Devon's current career as a keynote speaker, author, and motivator, he goes about inspiring students, business people, and leaders to achieve their goals using his real-life story of perseverance, persistence, through his motto, Keep On Pushing. It's my great pleasure to introduce my friend, Devin Harris. Devin, thanks for joining us. Hey, mate. Uh, great to be on, man. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me the, the public perception, not only then but now, of the Jamaican bobsled team and and about the team that got put together by a bunch of sprinters that wanted to represent their country. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you're right. You know, Cool Runnings is a comedy. And I think part of it is because of the stereotypical view of Jamaicans as fun-loving and easygoing and laid back. And it is true that we're all that. But I think people mistake all of that easygoing way about us for the fact that they think that somehow we're not passionate or we're not intense and we're not hungry for success. And I think if you just look at Jamaican history, whether we're talking about sports now, but across the board, you'll see that is further from the truth. There's no way you can get up and decide you're going to start a bobsled team and trying to get to the Olympic Games in a matter of months. Never, ever seen a bobsled or a bobsled trap before and and go, yeah, those guys are easygoing and they're laid back. No, we were intense. We were focused. Um, you know, we had uh, tremendous goals and we were really determined to, to achieve the goals. So you, you jump forward to that race, uh, the third run of the four-man event in 1988. And we came off the hill with the seventh fastest start time. By the way, Scott, after only one week of training, with a four-man sled. So talk about laid back, right? That's, um, yeah, that's one week of training with a four-man sled, and we came off the hill with the seventh fastest start time. And I remember as we, just before we hit the, what they call the Chrysler corner nine on that track, we, um, we hit the sled hit the wall. So I knew it wasn't the best thing, but I figured we'd get out on the other end, we'd slam in the wall, and we'd be on our merry way. But the next thing I remember is that we're over. And people always ask, because it, it's a pretty violent crash. I look at it on TV, it looks just horrendous. And people ask all the time, were you scared for your life? No, I was embarrassed. I just remember as we went over, I go, oh my, we're over. How embarrassing. Because this was happening in front of the entire world, man. We felt we had let down an entire nation. And I remember as I was walking down the breaking stretch, feeling dejected. But you know, people started to cheer. And said, we love you, we love you. And one guy shook my hand and I had to shake every other hand um, as, as we, I walked down. And I think what that said was people saw themselves in us. You know, all those people who had these crazy dreams, who were afraid to go after them, man, or had other people saying that it's impossible, you can't do it. They saw us going after a crazy dream and it empowered them, I think. And so it it went from... Before the Olympics, people laughing because who are these guys to people having so much admiration um, because we show them what is possible in their lives as well. It's one of the things that inspires me is, you know, 
you have a crash, whether it's in a bobsled or in your life or whatever, but it's how you dust yourself off and review what happened and then get on with life again, which I think is a great story. So I think it's a great outcome to what was probably at the time not a very good feeling or, or effort. <laughs> no, I agree. Not a good feeling, but you know, as I tell people all the time, man, failure isn't fatal. No. It's a chance to learn. It's more fatal if you don't try, right? Absolutely. I agree. You know, with, with COVID and the change of the world and, you know, events not taking place in 2020, where has the Devon Harris keynote speaking and motivational side of the business gone? And what's next for you in that sphere of your career? Yeah, um, you know, all of us have been impacted by COVID um, in one way or another. None of us are getting through this thing unscathed, man. And we have all had to have to learn to pivot, right? We have to learn. And it's perfect, I think, from my motto, keep on pushing, right? It's not just about getting, uh, you know, past obstacles. It's about growth and being innovative and, uh, you know, taking the skills and knowledge and experience that you have, Um to create or take advantage of opportunities in the new dynamic environment in which we live. And so I've had to be uh, true uh, to that message and philosophy as well in my own business. And so that has led me to uh, presenting virtually. You know, I've been really talking to companies now and helping them. You know, I've been using the tools, Scott, that I've learned in the Army and in the Olympics um, that I've seen work uh, about how to get people to develop this resilient mindset, right? You know, how they can really uh, wade through the sea of uncertainty. Uh, and so I present those uh, ideas to them uh, in, a, in a powerful, energetic 60-minute, I call it my 60-minute power boost. I guess I thank COVID for that because it has caused me to really start thinking a little bit differently in terms of what I can offer and how I can help you know sales teams and and others become high performers today's guest is colin knox colin's msp excel professional services grew from zero revenue to millions in annual recurring revenue and was acquired by f12.net as well as founding and developing his software company passportal he led that organization to continuous triple digit growth until it was acquired by solarwinds in 2019 Thanks for having me, Scott. Super happy to be here. So there wasn't one particular uh, person or thing that pushed you forward. It was it was a culmination of wanting to help people, wanting to earn cash, and wanting to develop something from scratch. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, if there's one thing that like gave me that la- final like kick in the boot to to get going and take the leap to do it, um, I had read and it had timely just just come out was a book by Robert Herjavec, who I think is fairly well known now in the IT channel um, and and his book driven. And I read that and saw that this guy went and built this amazing IT and technology company and sold it for a ton of money and then started up and had been doing it again. And I was like, well, geez, like if he does it, then I can definitely do it too, right? Um, so that's probably the the one pivot or flex point that happened where it just tilted and said, "Okay, now I'm doing this." But yeah, that's 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 really good because one of the biggest things, obviously, you find when people want to start a business or have the or, or go through the motions of starting a business, the biggest fear is 
not having an income or not having enough money in the bank to sustain themselves over, you know, what could be 12 months, 18 months, two years and so forth. So how did you combat that? Did you have a nest egg? Did you have someone that could support you? Um, you know, how did you make that leap of faith? Because it is a leap of faith, right? Yeah. No, I... <laughs> When I started the MSP, I had zero money. <laughs> like I can't even explain how zero money we had. We had just stretched ourselves and built a house that was admittedly outside our means at the time. Um, we had car loans. We had gone through, um, you know, fertility treatments to have children, which we put on a credit card. Like we were about as flexed and leveraged as possible. Um, but one of my business mentors from back in the day had a famous saying that he, he wasn't interested in working with a company, an entrepreneur, or even investing unless that person was uncomfortably pregnant with the idea. And, and what he meant by that was, I want you all in, like you're in the last trimester here, you are awkward, uncomfortable, not happy, and just you have to see this through to the end and, and, you know, get it done. Um, and that's where we were. I mean, I had an, a laptop that was probably four or five years old, but I hopped that in a satchel bag and, and hit the road and just leveraged that absolute desperation to have income and support the family and pay my bills to bring business in and, and start to build something. Right. Um, so that was it was purely in, in desperation to make things happen. There was no money. And I think not having money and not being super funded is extremely highly motivating um, if you're truly passionate about what you're trying to do. I think that's a really good, really good point there. I, uh, I remember some of my mentors and, and let's face it, we all have mentors, whether they're whether they're good mentors or, or ones that you want to try and avoid or, or whatever. but you know, these people have influential um, times in our lives. And, and I remember one of my mentors saying to me, you know, um, when I interview salespeople, I try and find the guy with the biggest mortgage because I know he's going to get down and get on with yeah. it. Um, and so that's quite that's quite prophetic in, in, in that situation. I, I love that motivation. Would I do it now at my age of life and, and so forth? Probably not, but, um, but I, I love that situation. And Today's guest is Rob Scott, who is a technology executive and has led such a diverse life, originally being an apprentice footballer for Manchester United, doing modern pentathlon and fencing, and then becoming a Formula One test driver for Ferrari and also driving for Porsche and Honda. Recently, Rob successfully led eight startups, two restarts, one internally incubated venture, all two successful outcomes, as well as sitting on the board of a bank and now... Rob is CEO of cybersecurity company Sigilant, which is headquartered in the US. I mean, people talk about safety and innovation. I mean, there's no more innovative organization than a Formula One team and no more innovative industry than the motorsport, in my opinion. Obviously, there's medical and, and our industry technology, but the innovation that goes on in a Formula One team, did you get a hint of that back then? And has that stayed in the back of your mind? Yeah, it stayed a lot because you can imagine a lot of innovation came out that actually fits inside a race car now. And one of them was Wi-Fi. 
and uh, Bluetooth and all those sort of things. But at that time, you had a, you, you actually had a clutch. You had to change gear. Nowadays, look what you've got with a, with a race car or any other car for that matter, any high performance car. You got paddles. That was never even thought of on a steering wheel. So I, I think technology's come a hell of a long way for those cars and made them much, much safer. But you just have to go back and think about what happened with, with Nicky Lauda himself at the Nürburgring when he had that crash and, and scraped, scraped him off the wall, basically. But again, the guts and the sportsmanship of those, those drivers then, he was back in a car within about eight weeks. Earlier on, your PE teacher was your mentor. You also then mentioned your first manager was an F1 fan and, you know, you got on well with him. And I'm, I, I would assume that he was a bit of a mentor as you were going on. I've had that same scenario, someone we both know, Gary Mead, who saw me in my early sales career and said, this guy's got something, I'm going to challenge him and I'm going to take him further in his career. And, and he guides me and mentors me and is that something that you enjoy doing and is that something that you do in those those companies you join or with individuals that you nurture within your your career now is that something you really enjoy doing yeah i think sort of mentorship program you can't really it's not official but you do it instinctively so yeah the guy at ibm was one and then and then a very very close friend of both gary and i at motorola was a guy called john richardson who's no longer with us and john mentored me right through my whole sales management career through Motorola. And we kept very close over the years from all the different positions I had. And I, I needed a sounding board. We all do. And it's, not, it's a sounding board in business. It's also a sounding board in life. Because uh, I lost my father quite early in life, uh, in his life at 56. So you do need that sounding board. And I, and I do it to this day. I offer people around me, whether it's when I'm on boards of companies, people can reach out and, and um, I, I love doing that. And we, and again, we all need it. We do it to our own kids, but we also do it to their friends as well. I get, I get calls all the time from my kids, uh, good friends all over the world. I mean, I've got three, don't forget, I've got three kids that live in Sydney and, um, their buddies are all still friends with me. And we all talk about sport. We talk about life and they've all got kids of their own now. I mean, it's, it, it's uh, an, an evolution. And, and I think it's a great thing. It keeps, keeps me motivated as well to learn what they're going through. So coming from that sporting and team background, working with a team, do you think the secret of the success that you've had with those organisations that you've joined is down to that working as a team culture and allowing people within that team to thrive that you had, you know, back in the Manchester United Ferrari days? Do you think that's a, that's a real catalyst of success you've had in those companies you've joined? I think it's a lot to do with that, but I also think it's, it's never forget how many failures do you have to have to get a success? And, and then how do you bounce back? How do you, I, mean, I talk about getting the scars of doing business and how you bounce back from those. And, and, and I've now been a CEO in nine companies. And I think that a lot of it comes to the fact that you never want to get to a stage where you've got to make payroll out of your own pocket. Now, there's not many people that I come across in, in executive management that can actually say they've had to do that. Thank God they haven't. But you, you certainly know that you never want to go back and do that. So I'd say there's, there's, there's the, the, the scars of doing business, learn from those mistakes, which will make you a stronger person going forward. We, we spoke about the early days of being an apprentice footballer and, and the sporting side of things, but when you started in business, whether it be Formula One and negotiating your contract or getting what you're given, as you said, or going down the IBM route and then Motorola and so forth, 
What in your business now that you know would you like to have said to Rob Scott all those years ago when you started to get into your career? I think it's having the knowledge now that I have, if I'd only had it when I was much younger. Those scars I keep talking about, you know, the knives in the back that, that now I know where they're coming from. Then I didn't know. So you, you took it on the nose and you had to fight for it. I still think that happens now, but you're actually a bit more nimbler than, than I was many, many years ago. And again, going back to mentorship, I want to pass that on so that my family, uh, I mean, I've got five kids and my grandkids all understand and can always come to me and ask those questions. That's that's a really good one. So you're rolling with the punches as opposed to taking it and getting knocked down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely 100% agree. I think that is the best answer I've heard. So thank you for that. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vanguard Podcast. Today's guest is Don Randall, MBE, who is an internationally renowned and respected senior security expert with over 50 years' experience in the security industry at local, national, and international levels. Don is a former senior police officer specializing in fraud, counterterrorism, and over 20 plus years' experience in the private sector in investment banking, central banking, and private consultancy. There were two times leaving British policing back then contractually. One is 30 years. That's your contractual period where your, your pension that you've contributed all kicks in. One is 25 years. And there's another one which is 26 and a half years where people get injured and can't continue their journey. And I took a decision. Ted Ferrace, who I'd met, had been plaguing me to join JP Morgan. And five years, I mean, since about 1993, I think, 92, something like that. And I kept saying, no, 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 I want to be a policeman. And then I guess you use the word segue. The segue for me was, you know, my destiny was never to be a chief officer because at that time I would, I would have been prohibited by virtue of the lack of academic qualifications. You know, so I might have got three out of the 43 positions. The odds were not good. And Ted was chasing me. And um, so I went, okay, I'll do this. And I always remember it, Scott, the 16th of January, 1995. I'm walking down Victoria Embankment towards 60. Uh, Victoria Bankman, which is the old City London School for Boys building, almost like a, a youngster going to school with his little pencil case and book. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> there was no going back in those days, Scott. You know, they, they, once you're gone, you're gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, across my mind, I might not like the job or they may not like me. And I was effectively taken over from someone. It was a bit of a rough three months. And I remember ringing Ted up. You talk about mentoring earlier. I rang Ted up one night. I said, Ted, you know, I'm really sorry. I can live with the country, but I just, this is not for me. You know, I'm not saying I'm the best thing on since sliced bread, but my first assignment by the current incumbent at that time was to, to go and do a, a crime prevention survey of the car park of their building in Stratford, you know. And I said, I'm not really, and Ted, Ted said to me, he said, look, just hang on, hang on. There is a plan. There is a roadmap. I waited five years for you to come. Yes. We didn't take anybody else. Just give it time, please. I've always believed, Scott, that the partnership and marriage between public and private sector law enforcement is the only way forward. Sure. And therefore, moving into the private sector with an institution like J.P. Morgan, as it was then and still is now with its combined role with Chase, was an opportunity to, to bond those two elements, the 25-year policing career, into a pretty powerful position within J.P. Morgan, which ended up with me having responsibility for everything outside of America, which employee members was about 56,000 in 36 offices, the whole of Europe, uh, the continent of Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, India, 
Australasia and Asia Pacific. So that's that was a geographic wow. spread of responsibility, which in mentoring terms, Ted just said, and that's the one difference, Scott, yeah? In the private sector, no one tells you what to do. You yeah. create your own requirements. Whereas in policing, a lot of policing back in the early 90s was reactive. Today, I think it's very proactive. But back then, it was very reactive, and the proactive was the lesser part. Whereas you go into the private sector and you create what you want to create. And, and I had a fantastic 25 years with the city police and a fantastic 14 years with JP Morgan, where I went from being almost starting again as an associate up to being a, a managing director with that responsibility I've just described and partnering. And there are certain initiatives that we did between public and private and really internationally brought the private sector close to policing. It wasn't easy because people are, people are thinking, oh, why is Randall doing this? Is he doing it just to make sure he gets a better bonus or anything? Yeah, all the normal, all the normal, you know, low life criticisms that you get. But you know, the intention was, hey, let's make this a better place. Let's go back to my mum again and say, yeah. just do what you do well as best you can, and make the place safe. I, I love that. Which brings us to the next part of the career, and and I, I, the final part of your commercial career before going out on your own. And that was becoming the first chief or director of security and then chief information security officer, so for uh, for the Bank of England. How did that come about after, you know, 13 years at JP Morgan? Okay. Um, the bank had approached me, I think, about 2005 to see if, um, if I would consider to join them. And I went through an interview process. I, I remember my interview process with a man called John Footman. And interestingly enough, Andrew Bailey, who is now the current the governor of the bank, yep. and Andrew was chief cashier then. And I just, I hadn't finished everything I wanted to do at JP Morgan. And, and if I'm brutally honest, I don't think the bank was quite ready for me and I wasn't quite ready for them. So I turned the job down in, I think, 2005. In 2007, I had a heart attack and um, it's all okay. And I have five stents now and, you know, they haven't gone rusty in the last 20 years. <laughs> um, you, you can't keep up the pace, you know, no matter how resilient and strong you are. Yeah, the pace of J.P. Morgan is such. It's you know you, they pay you well, you do a hard job. Mum's philosophy, and so I pretty much decided to to leave um, because I just you know it was too demanding. Apropos my my illness, mm-hmm. the bank uh, the bank came back to me. I remember I was actually in Florence in Italy with the then assistant commissioner of the Met, Peter Clark, and I got a call from Mr. Fulton's secretary saying John would like to have a word with you. I said okay, so I went in, and John said. We've had a few changes, you know, we'd like to reconsider. I went, okay. And I said, well, I've had the heart attack. He said, yeah, the bank, we, we've got things we want you to do at the bank, but just reconsider. And the interesting thing, which is I find quite funny, Scott, we had the same interview panel again. And uh, I remember John saying to me, he said, well, anything changed? I said, well, I've had a heart attack. And I'd also got an MBE. And um, he went, okay. But we went for it anyway. They offered me a job and they, they didn't want us to change. And we, we changed because it was time to change. The bank needed to move on. And then when Mark Carney arrived in um, the summer of 12, Mark did a couple of things. And one of those was to create the first information security division at the Bank of England and the CISO role. I call it a CISO, people call it CISO. Yep. And so what uh, Mark, through Charlotte Hogg, who was the first ever COO, asked me to do, and I was 63 then, so maybe 62 and a half, 63, um, was to create the information security division and additionally uh, and if, you're, if our listeners look up CBEST, C-B-E-S-T, it's an acronym with no meaning. 
But CBEST is effectively the, the mechanism where the bank, in line with government, um, calls annual information technology uh, examinations of the 24 supervised banks and some building societies and some insurance companies. In that two years, we built the information security division at that time, 27 people, uh, fully loaded, fully working, fully operational, £3.2 million budget, and became, I think, a, a recognized global model within central banking for a division. And, um, you know, built it from scratch in two years. And then at 65, my intention was to retire from the bank. Um, I stayed on for an extra year as an ambassador, cyber ambassador. Uh, amazing time, a, a wonderful institution to work for, progressive, keeps all its history, so valuable to the, the running of this country. And I, I remember when I joined there, Scott, Mervyn was governor and I got to meet him on the second day and uh, he and Mark a different character. And Mervyn called me in and shook my hand and said, we're so pleased to see you, Don. Connected, cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. Today's guest is Tony Delwood, who is Chief Executive Officer of a company called Gresham House PLC, and they are a specialist alternative asset manager listed on the London Stock Exchange Alternative Investment Market, or AIM, and from a standing start in December 2014, through a combination of acquisitions and organic growth, the company has grown massively, with now having assets under management of over £3.9 billion. Tony, you and I met through sport in 1998 when I came over to play cricket. Episode one of the Vanguard podcast was with the owner of Matt Cloud, Ian Vickers, who is an ex-footballer. Uh, not last one, but the one before that was with a chap by the name of Rob Scott, who's an ex-Formula One test driver for Ferrari. So it's really interesting that you mentioned sport. And sport seems to be the catalyst to everyone we speak to because of that team ethic. One of the things that Rob said to me, Tony, was no one achieves something just by themselves. And you have a wonderful team at Gresham that basically, yes, you manage them, but at the end of the day, it's all about that team working harmoniously to build up a team around you to be able to do and fulfill the the ambitions that you have as a company and yourself, right? Yeah. We want to give these people a platform uh, in order to achieve their ambitions. We, we, we use a phrase, Scott, um, move the needle. We want people to make a difference. And, and as a part of that, set their goals and ambitions and then make a difference. Because I couldn't think of anything worse in life from looking back and thinking, oh, I didn't really make a difference. And they can sort of leverage off the whole platform of Gresham House and the network around it, not just the 130-odd people you see in the business, but also the network around it is considerable. Um, uh, you know, some of the people I work with, you know, in advisory role, we've got the chairman of Lloyd's is on our investment committee, Lloyd's Insurance. We've got some of the people that started up like Mage.com and all these great, like, it was part of the last minute to come right at the start is in our umbrella and in our business. 
I put a lot of emphasis on those three things of people, strategy, and capital. And those are the three areas that I focus on when, when we look, I look at a business or indeed internally at a unit that I want to grow. And we're, we're doing well. As you rightly say, the ESG or environmental, social and governance aspects has become a massive theme in the last few years. We are well positioned in that. But importantly, there's a long, long, long way to go. And every day it changes. And we're all learning about it and how to measure it and then solve it and complete, you know, go around in circles again, measure it and then solve it again. So there's a long way to go. But but the team in that in Gresham House uh, and the network around it is is something that is established and provides a big value before we even start trying to address these, yeah. these ambitions. Well, well, let's touch on the uh, sustainability side of things for a minute, because one of the things that Gresham House has, I would say, been the forefront of and, and been an innovator within your industry, Oz, of is the investment in sustainability, the, the sustainability industry and, and sustainable businesses like wind farms and forestry and so forth. Tell us about your innovation into going after those investments and why you took that innovative stance to go after that industry. Yeah, there's a story here. I mean, I, as you say, this is the second business I've built in the financial markets. And I observed when I was at Schroeder Ventures and I was running a, a new business for them, public equities that's then evolved into private. And what I observed was the increasing allocations to alternatives. Now, in the old days, go back 30 years, bonds, equities, and cash, maybe with some property, was basically your allocation. If you owned for pension funds or endowments, you would just say, I'll have some bonds, I'll have some equities in the stock market, and I might have some property, and then I'll hold some cash. And that was it. You know, It was how much of those proportions. Yep. You fast forward now. You've got the amount of people, the, the, the percentage that is allocated to alternatives, and alternatives are private assets typically. You know, whether whether it be from infrastructure through to private equity, through to real assets, um, and some in hedge funds for for some people. You know, that those are things that didn't exist typically in allocations thirty years ago. They are now core to people's allocations. So I observed that in the early two thousands, and the pivot you refer to. Was is when I left this uh, Schroeder Ventures and thought, how do we build a business that focuses on capturing this growth in alternatives allocations? And separately, and it was second on the list back in that day because environmental and social and governance aspects was on the list, but not at the top of the list. Yeah. So we had that on our agenda. I led this management buy-in six years ago to a Shell company, Gresham House, and Shell means that it had nothing really in it. It was it was a twelve million pound market capitalization business. It had a couple of small properties on it, which wasn't core to us. And then turn it into a business where we could bring in shareholders who wanted to see the growth in these alternatives and, and recognize there was going to be growth, but also recognize some of the ESG aspects. And so they backed us. They gave us some new working capital in order to do that. And we went off on our merry way and we started building organically in certain areas, specialist public equity areas. We bought a platform for forestry and we then scaled that enormously with another act, two acquisitions at Plus Organic. Then we, we bought a renewables business, um, which we then scaled again into battery storage and on wind and on solar. And we started organically with the backing of a local government pension scheme, a sustainable infrastructure business, which also had social and affordable housing. So suddenly we had this, these alternative areas that people never used to really access, but they wanted to mm-hmm. think about putting in their portfolios. And we went, this is our business plan. We will scale each of these areas because they're growing in investor demand and we can capture an early mover advantage on that for two reasons. One is the alternatives aspect is growing, but two is they fit the ESG aspects and credibility very well. You know, there's lots going on in forestry, but you, you don't start from the position of having to greenwash. It is a, a very positive area 
in order to, to achieve some of your ESG goals. And indeed, there are other things within forestry like carbon credits to offset yeah. people's carbon emissions and, and the generation of carbon credits on the back of forestry. That is going to be another industry in itself in the next few years. So we pivoted Gresham House towards this alternative asset management growth and also played uh, very firmly into what ESG aspects were coming down the pipe. Uh, and that was the big pivot that you refer to back about six years ago when we led the management buy-in. And you fast forward now, as you rightly say, we're in a, we are the largest asset manager in the UK in forestry. We've recently gone to Ireland. We're the largest battery storage producer in the UK. We're number three, I think, in the VCT market uh, with Baronsmead. So we're a really big players in, in some, with market shares in some of these, these interesting asset classes. George Grant, welcome to the Vanguard podcast, who's co-founder and publisher of Housing Technology, which he started in 2006 to equip the UK's social housing providers with the tech resources and information they require to improve their tenants' lives. Housing Technology magazine has over 20,000 readers, providing thought leadership, insights on technology for housing professionals, and every March, his company brings together 600 of the high-level decision makers in that industry for a yearly conference. There are 300,000 people homeless in the UK, and George believes the housing crisis could be solved using the right mix of technology and social action, and it's his mission to do that by bringing together diverse housing experts from around the globe to collaborate and help solve these problems. There's, there's 1.6 billion people on earth right now without a home, right? Now, that is predicted to rise to 3 billion by 2050. Now, I've decided that we ought to really take the bull by the horns and actually map our direction and focus and our purpose to the United Nations goals, because that is the only way in which anybody can get some kind of vision about where they should be aiming. You've got to aim high in this world. You know, we can deal with the, the problems. I mean, uh, talk about technology. I mean, technology will save it. There's no two ways about it. We need the country's best thinkers, best entrepreneurs, best tech-savvy people, best policymakers, best urban designers, best architects to come together. It's as simple as that. You put them in the room and you say, we need to get rid of the housing crisis. We should be able to do it. There's no two ways about it. Like all these things, you need to think outside of the box. We're talking about 3D printing as part of the fourth industrial revolution, right? Build a home in 24 hours. Currently, most 3D printed construction products use concrete, but the future sees bioplastics technology, right? And crucially, the materials used are more resilient uh, against disasters such as hurricanes than traditional built houses, right? And we've, we all know about Grenfell. We've seen this at first hand. Grenfell was not just a wake-up call, but a complete realignment of everything, that the way in which people need to sort things out. So there's potentially the way in which AI and the connected communities are, are coming together. Obviously, it doesn't solve the, the land problem. There are so many clever people in the world right now who are trying to solve how, you know, you've got the build element and you've got the land acquisition, right? And I think uh, a lot of local authorities are sitting on huge amounts of land. I mean, you've only got to think, 300,000 people. How many homes could each local authority build tomorrow to solve that? That's what we need to be doing. We need to be pointing the finger and saying, 
sort this out. And obviously, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of trying to get political. And no, no. But what, what I what I am hoping to do is bring together a posse, if you like, of literally the world's best organizations. You've only got to look at the world right now in terms of technology. You know, the top organizations, the biggest companies in the world, what are they? Technology. They should be able to help. There's no two ways about it. I'm not saying it's the panacea. I'm saying that this this is definitely one major angle that we ought to be looking at. What do you wish you knew when you started your business that you know now? Um, well, actually, that is a that is a difficult question because the honest answer is I wish I didn't know anything because I actually want to learn as I go along. That's a great point. Knowing things in advance actually prevents you from making the bad decisions. And the bad decisions are the things that actually drive you forward. As my father would say, you learn by your mistakes, you make one bad error, and you never do it again. Yeah. So- I, I don't think anybody's given a, a roadmap. It's a tricky question. I actually think that you need to naturally progress in life with your own volition. No, I, I like it. Basically, you don't need a DeLorean to go back because you like learning as you go forward. I think so. Yep. And actually what happens is you get momentum as you as you progress. Oh, I agree with that completely. Uh, I think that's a great answer and, and one in which I think a lot of us can probably associate with. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this very special Australian edition of the Vanguard podcast, where I'm joined by fellow Antipodean Andrew Grill, who is a London-based practical futurist and former IBM Global Managing Partner, as well as a keynote speaker and trusted board-level technology advisor. One of the questions I, I asked one of my guests was, what's one thing that you thought would have happened by now? And, and I've actually asked this in the pub with friends or it comes up at barbecues and everyone thought the Back to the Future hoverboards would have been out by now, mm. you know. But we're not talking about that kind of futurist, are we? We're talking about how we work, how we interact with people, what's going to happen as far as, you know, are we going back in the office, that kind of thing. It's not about mm. the future of technology as such, is it? It's about the future of everything, just life in general, right? Well, as a futurist, strange things happen. And so I actually remember January 2020, I was standing at the top of the Gherkin building in London, giving a presentation to a law firm and their clients. And they'd asked me to look at the decade ahead. And so I talked about how, I actually did talk about the future of work. And I said, these things will probably happen in five to seven years. I had no idea, maybe this is me as a bad futurist, that six weeks later, we would be locked down. So what the pandemic has done for a futurist is they've pushed the fast forward button 10 years. And so where we all predicted that, yes, we would have a distributed workforce, we would find it normal to be working from home. The pandemic globally has said, we're going to force you to work from home. And this is the world's largest global work from home experiment. What's happening now, we might talk about, and I've got real world examples with my friends who are now debating, do they go back into the office? A friend of mine yesterday went back into the office because she had to actually sign something in person for the first time in 12 months. And I said to her, what was it like? She said, it was a strange experience, mm. but I don't know that I want to do that every day because she's become comfortable that she can actually work remotely and get work done. Yeah. So the challenge then is what will work look like? And well, we can talk about that in more detail. But I suppose as a futurist, the positive that's come out of it is all the things we predicted, the fast forward button was pushed and here we are. Let's talk about the workplace for a minute. And I'm hearing a lot of companies saying, you know what, we're, we're just not going to open up offices anymore. We, go, we are going to use those third places. We're going to use, you know, a Regis Spaces or we're going to use a WeWork where we can get together and, and hire a room for a couple of hours and people are just going to work from home. So what does the workplace of the future look like? And are we going to go back to commuting? 
I'm really struggling to see how commuting and going into an office is ever going to be the same ever again. Maybe in seven years or five years or three years, it's going to be different. But I'm just really struggling to see that going back to normality for a long time. Well, there are two ends of the spectrum. If you read what the CEO of Goldman Sachs has said, he thinks that for their business, remote working doesn't work. And he might be right, but they run Mm -hmm. a very different business. It's more transactional and relationship-based. I think what we've learned is that we can distribute work. Look at my industry, the, the speaking industry. Normally, what would happen is I would get an inquiry from someone in Australia. They'd say, we'd love you to come to Australia to speak. Going all the way to Sydney to speak for an hour or two or do a few engagements is fairly inefficient. But I can do a talk in Australia, which I did for Adobe uh, a few months ago in the morning. I can then do a talk in uh, the UK in the, at lunchtime, and I can then do something in another part of the world in the evening. Yep. So you're actually able to access talent you've never had access to before. I, I had on my podcast a few weeks ago, Gabrielle from Brain Trust. And now you don't have to work in Silicon Valley. You can get the best talent anywhere in the world. So I think that's going to change things. The challenge will be collaboration. Now, when I was at IBM, I ran a collaboration consulting team globally. We would go into a bank or an airline or a tech company, and we would look at their use of the collaboration tools like Slack or Chatter or or Workplace by Facebook. And nine times out of 10, people would say, Andrew, it just hasn't worked. But it hasn't been the technology. It's been the culture. So the challenge is now, how can we make our culture work in a remote distributed way. And one of the things I talk about a lot is the notion of working out loud. Again, not my concept. John Stepper wrote a great book on this where you use the internal social network to broadcast to the rest of the organization what you're working on. Now, initially, that can be quite uncomfortable because if you're from the generation I'm from, where information is power, you don't tell people what you're working on. However, the young leaders of the future that actually overshare on their own social networks come to work and are told, no, you can't share. There's got to be a middle ground where you can actually get work done by telling people what you're doing and not breach confidentiality. Because I've got to tell you, at IBM, what would happen is I would say, you know, I'm going to go to HSBC tomorrow to talk to so-and-so about whatever. Who's dealt with them before? Overnight, I would be deluged with slide decks and people to talk to. I would basically have access at IBM to 400,000 people globally. So how do we get our teams not just working effectively because we're able to pass work between them? So for example, my friend that had to go into the office, she had to cite some documents for a Know Your Customer, KYC. Yep. Why can't you use eSign or DocuSign or those sort of things to do that workflow? But my point is, it's not natural to collaborate and tell people what you're working on. We can't necessarily see each other in between Zoom calls. So how do you get work done and pass that around the world and follow the sun? So I think that's the one thing that will change. People will work out how to break down silos. And an interesting thing, I think it was Gabrielle also said, that the type of manager that lends themselves to manage teams better in a distributed workforce is actually an introvert. You've got the extrovert who always wants to, you know, rah, 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 and have the team around them. Maybe we're going to have a lot more introverted managers who are a little more accustomed to not having to have people sitting next to them to ensure that work's getting done. Oh, I love that. That's a podcast in itself right there. Mm. My guest today is Andrew Hedden who is Chief Marketing Officer of Marketopia, the premier business-to-business marketing and lead generation agency for technology companies. Andra has over 20 years of experience in marketing and business development and 12 years of experience focusing specifically on the IT channel. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra you live by? Ooh, so... I have a lot of favorites. Yep. One that I love as, as far as branding is concerned, um, and I actually just did a, a session on this this past week, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. But you know, be yourself; everyone else is taken. And I think that that is just amazing, and actually, you know, quite deep. If if you really think about it, you know, being really comfortable with who you are, 
being the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. And, and that's how I think that you find the most success in your life and truly the most fulfillment in your life because it feels the best when you're being the most authentic version of yourself. And so I think that, that that's something that I live by when it comes to just, you know, being exactly who you are in every situation of your life. And, and then two, you know, something that I also live by is we are, we're the writers of our own story. And I think that really taking ownership over, you know, being the author of your own journey um, is, is very cool and, and not being too worried about decisions or things along those lines because tomorrow's another day. And if you genuinely believe in yourself, anything's possible, right? You're going to figure it out and, and you'll get there. So, so that's just a couple, but there's so many that, that I try to live by. Um, the one I tell my children is anything is possible. I, I genuinely believe that if you want it bad enough and if you're willing to work hard for it enough, you can do literally anything you want to do in life. And, and I, I believe that to my core and you have to be willing to do it. You know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes work, it takes sacrifice. But if you want whatever that is bad enough, you can get it. You just have to yep. be willing to want to get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because these things stay with you. And, and I got a quote from my father. I think I must have been Andrew's age, you know, 14. And he told me that a champion team will always beat a team of champions. And that sticks in my mind and I use it so often. I must bore people. I probably bore people on this podcast with it, but it's something that just stays in my mind. I try and share that with all the teams that I work with or people that I work with or mentor or whatever. And, and you know, it's funny how these things just stick with you and you, you really do live by them, don't you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love, I love that it. one too. No, I think that's great. Yeah, it's good. And my guest today is Robert Bohr, who is CEO of Keepable, which is an award-winning GDPR SaaS solution, which shows users exactly where they are on GDPR, instantly creating the KPIs and reports they need, and optimizing ongoing compliance. Prior to today, Rob is a graduate of Oxford University with a master's in engineering, economics, and management, and then became a lawyer specializing in intellectual property and technology law in the UK, Hong Kong, and Australia before becoming general counsel for VC-backed SaaS companies. You mentioned that seeing on the back of a, a law magazine, a junk in Hong Kong Harbour, and then, yeah, there was reasons going out there for money and, and experience. And speaking to Andrew this week, he said, I want to finish university or I want to finish school and do maybe university in Australia or I want to travel. Do you think that sense of adventure or that adventure that you had going to Hong Kong and then Australia set you up for where you are now? And yes. how much of that adventure and that, I don't know, flying by the seat of your pants, do you think has influenced your career to date? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. First of all, brilliant to hear that from much. So I had a realization when I was a teenager that it, one of the reasons I didn't go into to banking or consulting was it, money's not the driver for me. It's like, I don't want to be lying on my deathbed with, you know, multiple whatever millions stashed under the mattress and I haven't actually spent time with family and friends or I haven't had experiences in life. And so the Epicurean attitude to life, life's about experience and the more experiences you have, the richer the life you have. And I thought definitely lying on your deathbed, you want to think I've made the most of my time here. I've experienced things. I've had meaning in my life. I've done meaningful things to help other people. That's really the important thing rather than how much money you've got under the mattress. So that's always been sort of at the back of my mind in that. And then I think if you go traveling, 
a massive fan of travel, but not not just a sort of a you know a week here or two weeks there. A lot of modern language degrees they go away for a year and they have to sort of you know they work in a bar or something or as a waiter and they come back and they've got better language skills. But they've also stood on their own two feet. And during my degree, we did a six month work placement, a two month one and a six month one. So the six months one I did, it was all about staff assessment. So it was all about psychology about the staff assessment program. This construction company wanted to redo their staff assessment program. And I had to go around the country visiting as a 20-year-old all these building sites and talking to the construction guys at different levels about how they found their staff assessment, what they didn't like about it. You've got to be able to talk to lots of different people. You know, as a 20-year-old, it's quite a sort of thing to be thrown into and there's a lot of strong characters there. And so that type of thing is the same thing as going traveling, where you're looking after yourself, you turn up, you go, this is me. There's no support chain around you. You're on your own. And getting over that fear factor and being able to do it. So the Hong Kong bit, I had a bit of um, nerves beforehand where I was thinking, can I do this? Am I capable enough to do this? And I said that to one of my friends and they said, look, you're one of the most capable people I know. I was like, oh, wow, that's really fantastic. So I didn't realize that was great feedback. And then I thought, well, actually, loads of people do it and they succeed at it. So am I less capable than any of those people? No, obviously not. So I'm going to go and do it. And then I went to do it and rapidly you get into it and you go, okay, I've done that. And once you achieve something, it empowers you to go and, and achieve more. And so... Definitely that Hong Kong experience was part of it. But I think, as I say, from that sort of stuff from school, stuff from uni, stuff all the way through and, and continuing now, I think every time you push yourself and expand your envelope, it's like a continual thing. It's an ever expanding thing. And if you don't push yourself and go for those things, you can sometimes just never really expand your envelope. And I think that's the separating thing at the end of the day. So I, pre- I applaud Andrew's, uh, Andrew's designer totally. I'd love my kids to go off for six months traveling and sort of not hear from them for you know, apart from an I'm okay dad type text now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know. of course, of course. Ian Moore is the Chief Executive Officer at the Fire Industry Association, who started his career with the Royal Navy and then became an officer in the Sultan of Oman's Armed Forces, responsible for a number of high-technology weapon systems on board several ships. After leaving the Navy, Ian started his career in fire safety, working in Taiwan, the Middle East, for global organisations, and then in 2000, moving back to the UK and receiving the DTI Millennium Award for Innovation for one of his solutions, and the Queen's Award for Innovation in 2013 for video smoke detection, which is world-renowned and manufactured by many global companies. Ian now sits at the pinnacle of the fire industry, being the Chief Executive Officer of the Fire Industry Association, and during his time as CEO, Ian has rapidly developed relationships with all key stakeholders and he's very well known for his commitment to fire safety and his representation of the SME business community. Last year, he chaired the BSI annual fire conference and was voted the most influential person in fire safety by his peers. Which brings us into the next part. You you then travelled to, uh, you're in the UK, then you travelled to Taiwan and you've been in Dubai in the Middle East and you've spent some time in Australia. And, you know, one of the things that, that I noticed in the CV and obviously speaking to people who know you is you've lived half your life overseas and your career, you know, the career overseas. I have constant conversations with young people, whether it's my son, his friends, kids at the cricket club, kids at the football club, uh, just general conversations about what am I going to do after school? Am I going to go to university? Where should I go to university? Most likely it's away from mum and dad so I can get some independence. My son, for instance, wants to go to university in Melbourne or Perth, which 
I'm a massive fan of. I've now spent almost 20 years of my life living away from home. I've had the most wonderful life of traveling predominantly to Southeast Asia, North America, and around Europe. And I think travel, being away from home, learning to be independent, learning all the different cultures is something that's built me to the person I am today. Love to get your feedback on that and and what you think of being overseas, living internationally, and experiencing all those different cultures. No, I can completely resonate with that. It didn't come through a, a desire to do I'm Obviously, the Navy gives you a taste of it by traveling around and all through North America, Iceland, uh, Greenland, going to the Poles. Very lucky with the traveling. Uh, and Oman, as he'd been based out there, I did a lot of traveling from there as a hub. So I saw a lot of the, sort of the, the, uh, the northeast of Africa, India, around that way as well. But the work took me uh, and an opportunity came up and, I, and I'd never really thought about it. And we just got married and I got an offer to move to a company called Cerberus, which is now Siemens. It was go to, to Taiwan and decide, literally come out the airport, go left, go right, set up an office and establish a business there. Uh, and culturally, it's quite extraordinary. Taiwan in those days, nothing was in English. Even the restaurants, we used to have to point to people's foods and things. And uh, it was it was tough, you know, in a way that probably more for my wife than for me. I mean, I was working, so but she was like at home trying to develop a life. But yeah, I worked in an office full of Chinese people uh, in, in Taipei. They are completely different uh, and their culture. But you soon get into it and you just basically you know, become one of them. You still become exactly what you are, which is, uh, you know, I am 100% English and uh, I don't think that will ever change. Um, but you learn to understand you culturally change things. You know when to bow your head and, and be quiet sometimes when they consider the status is higher or lower or yeah, all these different things. And, and it was an absolutely wonderful experience to walk away doing that for three years. To, and it, it blossoms your mind to, to understand about things. And the whole world then suddenly fills your feet. As you mentioned, that I moved then to Dubai and that's where our son was born. So our, our daughter's born in Taiwan. So we always say she's made in Taiwan. Should have that tattooed on her somewhere, made in Taiwan. And, then, and Ethan, our son, was born in Dubai. So we are a multicultural family by that background alone. Absolutely, my son now, is he hears all these stories about the traveling and the sailing we do around the world. Branch offices in America. Um, we had factories in, in China, uh, as, as you say, Australia, and I've been to all places around the globe. I've been absolutely blessed with traveling. You, you do sometimes get a little bit tired when it's when it's packed too heavily. For young people, that's the time to do it because you're bouncing with enthusiasm. Um, and when you get a little bit older, you you think twice about a long haul flight to somewhere. And but. Business takes you that way. Uh, I'm a great believer in face-to-face meetings, and this is why the last year has been pretty tough, as you can probably imagine, for everybody. But I think for people like myself, and there's a lot of us that are quite gregarious, I like being in front of people, talking to people. And, you know, I always used to joke to people, I do my best work in the bar, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Just back, relaxing, just chatting. That, that's where, you know, I formed unbelievably strong relationships in business, which I, I can talk about later about where I am now, what I'm doing. But that, that was an unbelievably great foundation for that. It just makes you a better person. I mean, whether it makes you better professionally, I think it does, but I would say that. But I think 
as a personal sort of journey, to use that good old phrase, it's been incredible to, to have traveled all around the world and met so many wonderful people. And I'm incredibly tolerant of every shape and size of person, and I don't prejudge. And I see these isms leveled at so many people with the modern way of trying to put you into a bracket of not liking something. I am so alien to that, it's unbelievable, because I've actually lived and breathed those experiences. So I would never be accused of being anything apart from a bloke um, living his life. I've loved listening to the highlights of Series 1, and those guests were just so fantastic and very kind to me being a first-time host. Their insight into their lives, businesses, and what drove them to success really did inspire me. And I know a lot of you too from the fantastic feedback I've had since we launched in 2020. You know, episodes are released every two weeks with the next one live on Wednesday, the 15th of September. So be sure to subscribe so you never miss out. There may even be the odd special feature here and there, so you won't want to miss out on those as well. Thanks again to all my guests from Series 1 and bring on Series 2. Remember, take care, stay safe and keep on innovating.